0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before the Mercury program began in 1958, doctors at NASA were worried about how our bodies would function without the gravity in which we had evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. What would happen to a circulatory system that was used to gravity working against it? Could people swallow their food without gravity working with it? How would you urinate and defecate in space? Would you even be able to? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone talks about how we went to space, but very few of us stop to wonder how astronauts go in space. Alan Shepard's 1961 space flight, which would make him the first American man to reach space 23 days after Russian Yuri Gagarin, was only scheduled to be a 15-minute mission, just long enough to slip the surly bonds of Earth and get 116 miles or 187 kilometers high and come back down. The launch procedure leading up to that was scheduled to take five hours, during which officials figured Shepard could hold it. A series of launch delays meant that Shepard ended up spending a total of eight hours strapped to the lone seat of the Mercury capsule by a 12-point restraint system. There would be no hopping up quickly to go to the bathroom. Man, I've got to pee, Shepard finally radioed to Control. They refused to let Shepard get out, so he threatened to pee in his suit. Control worried that the urine would short out the medical sensors and electrical thermometers. Finally, they relented and switched the suit's electronics off. A loud, drawn-out, ah, could then be heard. Picture Tom Hanks' first scene in A League of Their Own. So the first American went into space, soaked in his own pee. NASA had been considering how people would pee in space, but Shepard's flight bumped it up the priority list. The first system to collect urine involved what was officially called a roll-on cuff, a kind of sheath that looked like a thick condom, plus a plastic tube, valve, clamp, and collection bag. The system tended to leak, but the main problem was the sheath kept coming loose, leaving astronauts soaking in pee. Was this a design flaw or a materials failure? Nope. The sheaths came in small, medium, and large sizes, all of the astronauts requested the large sheath, whether or not they actually needed the large. Subsequently, the astronauts referred to the sheath sizes as extra-large, immense, and unbelievable. The lack of gravity creates complications before urine can even leave your body. You don't feel the signals of a full bladder the way you do on Earth. With standard gravity, urine collects on the bottom of the bladder and stretches as it fills. About two-thirds full, and nerve signals will tell you that it's time to spend a penny, as the Brits used to say. Liquids inside the body act like liquids outside the body in space, floating in a blobby sphere. The bladder has to be full-full before the nerves get triggered in microgravity. By that time, your bladder can be so full that your urethra is actually pinched-closed, and now you couldn't pee if you wanted to. When John Glenn urinated in space for the very first time, he voided a massive 27 ounces or 800 milliliters because his bladder was so overfull. To avoid very real medical complications developing, astronauts go to the bathroom on a schedule. And the same goes for the bowels, but more on that later. On Apollo missions, They would slip on a sheath attached to a valve, turn the valve, and have their urine sucked out into the vacuum of space. If they timed it right. Open the valve a fraction too late, and the urine escaped into the cabin. Open it too early, and the vacuum of space would try to take bits of you for a spacewalk. Apparently, the venting of pee into space is really pretty. It catches the sunlight and sparkles. For spacewalks, the Apollo astronauts were back to the condoms that collected the pee in a bag in the suit. If you saw the movie Apollo 13, you might remember that Fred Hayes, played by Bill Paxton, got sick. After the oxygen tank explosion that crippled their craft, the astronauts couldn't use the regular vent to jettison urine because it needed to be heated to keep the pee from freezing it shut. Mission Control told them to stop dumping pee. So the crew found themselves collecting pee in every bag and container on hand. The fastest option was to store it in the collection bags in their suits. Hayes kept his on for hours, basically wearing a urinal. It's little wonder he developed a urinary tract infection that led to a kidney infection. Eventually, when NASA finally decided to let women into space, they had to come up with a way to handle peeing in space for those who don't have a penis. Enter the MAG, Maximum Absorbency Garment, to be worn for launch and during spacewalks. It's a diaper. The men switched over to using those because it was more comfortable and less prone to leave pee floating around the cabin than the sheath. Women were actually considered for space travel from the very beginning. Nineteen women entered the first round of assessments for the Mercury program. Thirteen of them passed, including a mother of eight, who probably found the testing to be a pleasant break from her regular days. In many ways, women might be better suited to space travel than men. We're smaller, which means we require less weight on the payload. The test subjects had better cardiovascular health and lower oxygen consumption. Because more of our body mass is at our hips rather than on our chest, we can tolerate higher G-forces without passing out. The pre-Mercury females also outperformed the men on isolation and stress tests. Despite all of this, the women were dropped from the program. Later known as the Mercury 13, the women went to Congress— to fight the ruling, but by then, the United States was in the midst of the moon race. Putting a woman into space was seen as a distraction, in part because the Soviet Union had already sent a woman into space, Valentina Tereshkova, and that was derided as just being a publicity stunt. I'd like to tell you how Tereshkova peed during her three days in space in 1963, but my research turns up no verifiable results. Given procedures used for pilots in some circumstances at the time, it's likely that she had a catheter in place. During Mercury Project, astronauts did not need scientific training. They simply needed a bachelor's degree. Well, needed. John Glenn didn't have one. As for flight training, astronauts needed to be a graduate of a test pilot school with a minimum of 1,500 hours of flying time and be a qualified jet pilot. Test pilots were needed not only because of their nerves of steel when dealing with experimental vehicles, but because test pilots are trained to take notes while piloting and to deliver clear reports afterwards. But this criteria eliminated female pilots because the only qualified test pilot schools didn't accept women. Mind you, during World War II, the women Air Force Service pilots were responsible for training male pilots and towing planes for live ammunition practice, as well as ferrying and testing aircraft. In many cases, those women logged more flight hours than their male counterparts. But they didn't have a certificate when it was all over. That was the 1950s. It would be 1983 before an American woman got to space. So it's little wonder women weren't a consideration when creating the vehicles, tools, amenities, policies, etc. The gender bias carried over from program to program. That's how we ended up with the March 2019 headline, First All-Female Spacewalk Won't Happen, Not Enough Medium-Sized Suits. Flight engineer Christina Koch and Anne McLean were coincidentally scheduled to do a spacewalk together on the International Space Station, but NASA had to swap one of them out because there was only one space suit that was the correct size for either woman. The suits, known as Extra Vehicle Mobility Units, were designed 40 years ago, based on the designs of the Apollo mission, at a time when the astronauts were all men. Only four of the original 18 suits are still rated for spaceflight, and all of those were already on the space station. NASA first planned to have extra-small, small, small, medium, large, and extra-large spacesuits. For budgetary reasons, the extra-small, small, small, and extra-large suits were not made. However, many of the male astronauts didn't fit into the size-large suits, so the extra-large was brought back, but the smaller sizes never were. And this may be more sour grapes than a bonus fact, but there are downsides to doing EVA's extra vehicle activity. Fingernails. The hard rubber fingertips of the bulky, thick gloves on the suit can drag against your fingernails hard enough to cause them to delaminate or even pull them out. Some astronauts will pull theirs out in advance rather than waiting for the glove to do it. Ooh, okay. I think we need a quick palate cleanser right there. We got another review on our Apple Podcast page. This one, our very first one, coming out of Australia. Ricardioso gave us five stars and said, "Well researched and witty. Lots of fun learning to be had here. Told with humor when warranted and compassion when needed." Thank you so much, Ricardioso and I suspect that's coming on the heels of the two-part Never Work With Children and Animals episodes, which got a little dark. I am also thoroughly pleased to announce that we have a new member at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts. Sincere thanks and welcome to Darren Dwyer, who joins Adam, Amber, Baron, Charles, Council of Geeks, Crispy Platypus, Dan, Eric, Michael, Nathan, Ryan, Sean, Seth, and Troy in helping me to cover the costs of the show and keep the podcast going. For that, they get to vote on episode topics, get bonus content like the new podcast Spot the Lie, kind of a two truths and a lie game that I play with some fellow podcast hosts that is a Patreon exclusive. And that is available for even the lowest tier, $2 a month, which is $0.07 a day. But even if you don't support the show monetarily, the best way to help any podcast you listen to is to promote it. Tell a friend in person, send them a link. Sharing on social media is always a huge help. And so for that, I want to thank this week's Social Media Signal Boosters, Go Your Own YA podcast, Augie Peterson, Bunny Trails podcast, winner of this week's best Twitter handle ever, the Canuckonomicon, Lindsay Nelson, Roman Braga, Richard Enriquez, Tennis Podcast, Environment's Podcast, Neville DeVar, and Alphabet Fight, whose host Jesse also had me on his other podcast, Creepy Critters, where I'm the one learning for a change, and he teaches me all about Mongolian deathworms. And special thanks to everybody who sent me pictures of their pets when I idly asked, does anybody ask their pets to do stuff for them knowing they can't without opposable thumbs? You know you do it. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. With female astronauts becoming more common, another bodily function to prep for presents itself. Menstruation. Now, if you sat through all the pee stuff and are planning to listen to the poo stuff, but balk when I mention periods, says a thing or two about you, doesn't it? Still here? As I suspected, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Since NASA's early days, periods in space had been a strange and mysterious topic for the engineers. When Sally Ride was preparing to go into space for six days in 1983, the engineers asked her if 100 tampons would be right. She said no, that would not be the right number. Before Sally Ride, NASA feared that microgravity in space would cause retrograde menstruation, a condition that actually happens here on Earth, associated with endometriosis, where the menstrual blood flows up into the pelvic cavity instead of down and out of the body. According to women who have been to space, it's just like having a period on Earth— it turns out that menstrual blood flow is more of a wicking action. Gravity helps, but isn't necessary. The female reproductive cycle actually is one of the systems in the body that is just not impacted by being in space, says OBGYN Varsha Jane. I think it's fascinating that originally it was one of the things that maybe kept women from going into space, but it's just not affected. Personal hygiene is less than ideal in space due to limited shower facilities and a finite amount of water, so menstruating during spaceflight is not as practical as it is on Earth. Not that it's terribly practical down here. Cargo weight of tampons and sanitary napkins has to be taken into account. As a result, female astronauts are turning to hormonal birth control to skip their periods altogether. According to Dr. Kristen Jackson it's completely safe for women to skip their periods. A lot of women have difficult periods, and there's no medical reason why a woman has to menstruate every month. Though she does add, it's important to note that none of these methods are guaranteed to suppress all periods. The most common form of suppression is oral progesterone pill, the pill. The second most popular is an IUD intrauterine device, which is inserted into the uterus by a doctor and can be there for between three and five years. There are also subdermal implants that are safe for up to three years, or quarterly Depo-Provera shots. The latter three are more cargo-weight friendly. The pill can also exacerbate bone loss, a real concern in space where our bodies are under less physical strain than they were designed for. In fact, astronauts can lose so much bone mass that the calcium expelled in their urine can clog the waste disposal filters. Speaking of which, the waste disposal system on board the ISS is not designed to handle menstrual blood, as the toilet system is connected to the water reclamation system, which recycles urine into drinking water. The ISS has two toilets on the American side, and only one of them can be used by menstruating astronauts. Also, if you have any concept of how annoying it is to change your sanitary product under even the best conditions, imagine doing it in microgravity. Makes that porta potty at the music festival look like a walk in the park. So what does it take to poop in outer space? Well, there are some things that have to be taken into consideration. For one thing, it takes a long time. Gravity's a big part of the system. And without gravity, we have to wait for the natural peristalsis, the muscle movement of the intestines, to move things along. The individual messes don't detach on their own. Gravity doesn't cause them to drop away from the body, so that has to be assisted. And yeah, I'm going to try to stay medical and scientific, but a teeny bit euphemistic, because my mom is listening after all. The material you're expelling also doesn't go straight down. It curls, like fake dog poo, or the poo emoji. And that can be a particular problem when dealing with the modern toilets on the International Space Station. They are so precise that the astronauts train on how to use them on the ground. The opening on these toilets is only four inches across, whereas a normal average American toilet seat has an opening of 18 inches across so it's important that the astronaut be seated correctly. To this end, there is a positional trainer at the Johnson Space Center, a mock-up of a toilet with a camera in it, so that you can look on the monitor and make sure that your opening is dead center on the toilet's opening. It's important to practice this because you won't have the weight of your body sitting on the toilet to give you an idea of where you are. Your excretions are moved down the system by jets of air that come out holes all along the top of the toilet. If any of those become plugged, the toilet is now disabled, and you have to clean it. One way to help ensure that everything goes as it should and where it should is to adopt a squat position. To this end, one engineer suggested to NASA that they add a set of foot restraints higher up on the toilet to accommodate those who wished to squat. But no-go. When it comes to creature comforts, familiarity, similarity to what's on the ground, will always win out over practicality. I mean, there's a kitchen table in the ISS, despite the fact that you can't set a plate down on it. It just feels good and normal to gather around it after your shift. So that's the height of space toilet technology. But what did early astronauts have to put up with? For that, I wish to read to you from... Packing for Mars from the amazing Mary Roach. Read all of her books. They are fabulous. She is wonderful. I emailed her one time with a question. She emailed me right back. Also, you may notice this episode was a little late this week. I was caught up in a misadventure that didn't even leave me with a fun story to tell. Normally, I do all of the reading and then reassemble the information in my script. But today you're going to get it direct from the source. The Apollo program used the Fecal Bag. The Fecal Bag is a clear plastic sack, similar to a vomit bag in size, holding capacity, and its ability to inspire dread and revulsion. A molded adhesive ring at the top of the bag was designed for the average curvature of an astronaut's cheeks. It rarely fit. The adhesive pulled hairs. Worse, without gravity or airflow or anything else to foster separation, the astronaut was obliged to employ his finger. Each bag had an inset near the top called a finger cot. The fun didn't stop there. Before he could roll up and seal the bag to trap the offending monster, the crew member was further burdened with tearing open a small packet of germicide squeezing the contents into the bag and manually kneading the germicide through the feces. Failure to do so would allow fecal bacteria to do their bacterial thing, digesting the waste and expelling gas that inside your gut would become your own gas. Since a sealed plastic fecal bag cannot fart, it could, without the germicide, eventually burst. The test of a good friend was to hand the bag to your crewmate and have him get that germicide completely mushed in through the fecal material, Gemini and Apollo astronaut Jim Lovell told me. I'd go, here, Frank, I'm busy. Given the complexity of the chore, escapees, as in free-floating fecal material, plague the crew. Conversations about it even show up in official mission transcripts. Still, it could be worse. Also under consideration for the Apollo crew, the defecation glove. Here, the astronauts would reach around and crap into his own palm, then peel back the glove, much as dog owners use a plastic newspaper sleeve to pick up and dispose of dog feces. Then there was the Chinese finger, a bag that would clamp onto a bolus as you pulled on the end. The name Chinese finger refers to the cheap party toy of the same name, and possibly to the astronaut's response to the device. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Thank you for bearing with me. This was actually the first week I didn't have my episode up on the right day, which was frustrating. And thank you very much to uh, Charles with a Hammer for checking in on me when you saw that the episode didn't go up on time. I don't want to sound schmaltzy and say, I love each and every one of you, but I kind of do. You're all pretty super. And any little social interaction we have on Twitter, even a like, a retweet, whatever, it really adds to the quality of my day. And I thank you for it. And thanks for spending part of your day with me.